Well, good morning, church. My name's John Plunkett. Uh, I was given a call this week and asked if I would come and preach since your minister was going to be away today, and uh, I was more than happy to do that. I've been 50-plus years in the ministry, um, the last 35 in the located ministry. I was with the Creve Corps Christian Church just on the other side of the river from Peoria, and uh, when I retired from that, I, uh, the, 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 the only part about retiring from the ministry, um, the located ministry, was I didn't mind retiring from all that Monday through Saturday stuff. But the thing that I missed the most was preaching. And so I've made myself available as much as possible to preach whenever a pulpit needs to be filled. And uh, so that's kind of why I'm here today. And I've gone into a lot of churches, some that uh, are on their last uh, leg and hope, and uh, some that are really thriving and doing well. But, and um, the message topic today, they said, preach whatever you want. And uh, so it's about evangelism, because so many of the churches that I preach in anymore, evangelism is something that is so far off their radar, you know, I've, I've gone in and I've said, when was the last time you uh, filled the baptistry? And uh, I've had people scratch their head, they couldn't remember, you know. And uh, well, maybe, maybe last year, I think we maybe had one baptism. And um, bapti- uh, evangelism is just something that seems to have been lost in the church, even though Jesus made it his last great commission in Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Just in the few minutes that I've been here, I've already seen evidences that there is some there is some evangelism life in this church, and, uh, and that's great, and I commend you for that. Back in 1972, when I was preaching down in southern Illinois, one of the most memorable times in, in all of my 50-plus years in the ministry, it was in the springtime in the little church at Sesser, down south of Mount Vernon. We were having a revival. And you remember those? It was a long, week-long revival. We brought in an evangelist, and he and I spent all week calling in people's homes. And we had people come forward in every service but one that week. We had 13 baptisms that week. By Tuesday, there was a buzz all over town. What in the world is going on over at the Christian church? And back then, the only social media we had in those days was word of mouth or uh, face-to-face or over the telephone. Evangelism was on the minds of everyone in that church and and in that community. From the end of January till the revival began in mid-April, every Thursday night was calling night. Some of you might even remember having those kinds of nights. Three or four generations ago, evangelism was the vision and mission of every church in America. When the church came together on Sunday morning, we had prayed for, we had called that week, we, had expe- we came expecting decisions at the invitation. The invitation was always strong and it was always given. But today, revivals are a distant past. 
Calling nights are resistant to church growth. The invitation in a lot of churches isn't even extended at the end of the sermon anymore. Yet the verse in the Bible that always has been and remains my mission and my vision. 1 Corinthians 1.21 That by the foolishness of preaching, some are brought to salvation. But the church has changed. My daughter is a big Philadelphia Eagles fan, and just before they went to the Super Bowl two years ago, she posted pictures on Facebook of some of those team members about their faith and baptizing other teammates. And I shared that post and I commented to whoever would read it that this team and these men were a a testimony and doing more for the kingdom of God than a lot of churches are doing today. What's the difference? And I concluded the difference was who Jesus was or is to them. Evangelism is not a priority. In fact, a a survey that was conducted among a thousand churches in California, 89% of the respondents declared the church exists to minister to those who attend and are members of the church. Well, if that's true, you're like the local country club. Membership has its privileges. So we wonder why churches are small. We wonder why churches hit a plateau and never grow. We wonder why churches are dying. An average of about 4,000 churches in these modern times shutter their stained glass windows and lock the doors and shut off the lights after the last prayer is said and the last hymn is sung every year. This is happening. In my 40 years living in Creve Corps, four churches have closed, two more are on what I call hospice. And when this happens, what's the reason? And the reason is the failure to carry out this commandment to go into all the world and make disciples. And you hold the key to a growing, thriving, viable, healthy church in your community. So my message for the church today is about evangelism. And I would pray specifically that your staff, your minister, your your elders, mainstream evangelism into the heart and soul of the church. I want to communicate God's heart for lost people. Everyone in your town has been lost, and only some of them have been found. Only some of them are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Romans 3.23 declares that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Jesus left here giving us this great commission to seek and to save the lost. And while he walked among men, he stated that was his mission And when I started preaching 50 years ago, here was a big question that I encountered that was on a lot of people's minds, especially after preaching a sermon about evangelism, about salvation. People would ask, hey, preacher, how can I know if I'm really saved? And why were they asking that question? It was because salvation through evangelism was a big priority We believe that the church existed to carry out Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost. And every sermon I preached in those days began and ended with a mind for evangelism. And I, I never hear people today asking that question. Not anymore. That's because nearly everybody I encounter already thinks they're going to heaven. 
And how do I come to that conclusion? One of the other things that I do in my retirement is I work part-time for a funeral home, and I listen. I listen to what people are saying as they've come together because someone they love has died. And they think by what they say, they're all going to heaven. We will get to be with Joe again one day in heaven. He said, yes, he's going to prepare a place for us, but I guess Jesus will build a mansion and Grandma will hang the curtains. I don't know, but I have yet to hear the first person say, I hope I will be there. I hope Grandma will be there. I hope Grandpa will be there. I never hear people talk about if they will be there. It's always when we get there. But my Bible says the way to heaven is narrow, and few there are who will find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many will find it. So what you need to do is invest and invite and make evangelism a priority. I attended a conference a couple years ago, and I heard a guy that some of you long-timers here at Monmouth are familiar with, I'm sure, a guy by the name of Gene Apple, tell this story, and then he asked a very important question. When Gene was a boy growing up in the parsonage in Lincoln, Illinois, there was a, an elderly lady in the congregation that sort of became a, a grandmother figure to him, and, and she would always uh, make sure that he had a gift from her at Christmas and on his birthday. And one year, uh, she gave him a bank that she had purchased. And it was a bank with a man standing on top of a, a, a box or whatever. And uh, he had his hand out. And you would put a coin in his hand. And with the weight of the coin and gravity, he would tip. And as he did so, the coin would roll out of his hand into a slot into the box. He loved that bank. And he kept it prominently displayed in his bedroom and uh, in his dorm room when he was in college. And then when he got married, he again brought it out and put it on top of his dresser in the bedroom. But his wife thought it was hideous. It didn't fit the decor. She didn't like it. And she would take it and she would hide it, put it in the back of the closet. And when he realized it was gone, he would go and dig it out and put it back up. And so they went through this process several times, and finally she informed him that she doubted if his bank would even sell for $5 at a yard sale. And so they had this debate going. And so one day she stopped by an antique dealer's shop and went in and described the bank, didn't even have it with her, just described it. And the guy said, I'll give you $120 for that bank. And so she came home all excited. She said, Gene, do you know what our bank is worth? And so they began to do research on the internet. They found a dealer in Washington, D.C. that offered them $2,000 for that bank. They continued to research. They finally sold it to a dealer in Philadelphia for $4,000. Now, what do you think made that bank so valuable? Value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. And so here's the question. What are you worth? 
God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that you might be saved. That's what you're worth. What is your neighbor worth? Secondly, you need to raise your evangelism intensity. God might be better served if you invest in your neighbors and not invest so much in ministry. My wife, Faye, and I, we have tried to do this. We've invited our neighbors over. We've had refreshments and fellowship with them. We've tried not to judge them or dismiss any of them because one of them has a yard full of junk and just junks up the street that we live on. Another neighbor has so many vehicles you can't even find a place to park on our end of the street. My next-door neighbor has dogs that bark a lot, but they've all been in my home. I heard Gene Apple again tell when he was ministering in Las Vegas for 18 years how they invested in their neighbors. One was an elder in the Mormon church that lived behind them. One family was Buddhist that lived next door to him on one side. The family across the street, immediately across the street, was Jewish. And the family on the other side is what he described as heathens. The man was a lawyer and his wife danced in a topless show in Vegas. But they all had kids, and the kids would play together, and they'd have each other over for, for, for picnics out in the yard and, and barbecues, and, and they invested in those people. And after 9-11, when everyone was going to church, the Jewish family and his heathen neighbors next door were in church where he was preaching that Sunday, and they began their walk down the road to their salvation. My friends, God relies on acceptance, not approval. We must accept flawed human beings in the moment. We may not approve, we may not agree with them, but we must accept them. Just think of all the people Jesus encountered. Jesus had 132 contacts with people recorded in Scripture, but only 10 times, only 10 times, did it ever occur in the synagogue or the temple? It was always outside. I would like to challenge you to some 3D evangelism. And the 3Ds are simply this. Decide to engage. Work through your prejudices, your judgments. Decide to engage your neighbors. I heard of a man who said he couldn't engage his neighbor. He tried. He would take his snowblower over and blow out his driveway, and the guy never even thanked him, not even once. But this guy had no problem walking his dog and stopping in his front yard and letting him drop his business. So the man decided to engage his neighbor, and on a hot July day, he scooped up the poop in his backyard, took it over, and dropped it in the middle of his neighbor's picnic table. Now that's engaging. But though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I'm just a clanging gong and a banging cymbal. I ask the question again, what is your neighbor worth? Decide to engage and then develop a relationship. Develop a relationship. People don't care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. Like the Good Samaritan. 
like the family that suffered a horrific loss of, of life of a loved one to suicide, like the father whose son is going the way of the prodigal, trying to find his way in this world, like the neighbor who is living with his girlfriend for two years next door. When they got married, it was significant enough that he thought that he should tell me about the change in their relationship. And now they were no longer just living together, but now they were married in the eyes of, of, of the world. And the reason he gave me for why they got married was because they wanted to start a family. And Gideon Silas was uh, born just a couple of months ago. And I found that his name is very interesting. Gideon Silas. I don't know where these people are in, in any kind of relationship with God, but I want to have a conversation with them about a Gideon and a Silas that I know. Decide to engage and then develop a relationship. And finally, discern how to take the next step. Discern when the time is right. Discern what that next step might be. You want optimum results? We want all men to be saved. Discern what you need to do, like the Apostle Paul who declared that he strived to become all things to all men. But he also said, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, then I won't eat meat. How often have we thought, you know, it's really nobody's business what I think or what I do. But is this letting our light shine so that men might see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven? There are times you want to hide your light under a bushel. We live in a real hide-and-seek world. <clears throat> you remember playing that game as a kid? You try to hide so you can't be found by the seeker. And after a while, if you're not found, the seeker gets impatient. And so he calls out, Ollie, Ollie, income free, and everybody gets to come in free. So you come out of your hiding place. Sometimes when we played that game, the seeker would not call Ollie, Ollie, income free, but would keep seeking. And they'd get close to where you'd been hiding for a while. And, and you'd been there a while, and you really wanted to be found. So you'd make some noise. Oh, and then they'd find you. So again, I leave you with a question. How many of your neighbors are lost? And do they ever make any noise about wanting to be found? Because I suspect that a lot of them do. And you need to determine what they're worth. Because we know what they're worth to God. The fourth thing is I want to challenge you to create a buzz in your community. Like the revival I described happening in the early years of my ministry. In the community where I live today, I retired there. I, I live a block from the church that I preached in for 35 years. And the buzz for the church in that community, is about feeding the hungry. We've been doing that since 1982. We created a food bank in 1982 when, during a prolonged caterpillar strike that year that affected our church tremendously. And we've been giving away food ever since. We're open a couple of times a month, but we always have a sign on the door and people have our number. They can call anytime and we will give them food. We prepare over 200 Christmas baskets for giveaway every year at Christmas. 
We started out doing 50 snack packs. It increased to 75 snack packs. Now we're doing over 100 snack packs for impoverished kids in our school district. We delivered meals in our town for seven years until the government shut us down. They had a better way of doing it, they thought. What can your church do that no other church or organization is doing in your community as a, your comprehensive calling, your niche in this town? What can you do to create a buzz? I know a church that gives out backpacks full of new school supplies every August to all the kids in their community that want or need them. I know a church that has created an adoption of babies. Uh, it's a ministry with huge success. A friend recently wrote in the Christian Standard how his church's daycare and preschool was their evangelistic tool for keeping their church viable in a town of only 1,200 population. What has your church done that would create a buzz in your community so that people would be saying, Ah, oh, First Christian Church out there on the, on the bypass. First Christian Church of Monmouth there on, on Sunny Lane. Yes, that's the church that. The last thing is to be known what you're for and not what you're against. When you're known for reaching out to lost people, to the unchurched, to the disenfranchised of this world, People who need the Lord will be drawn to you. When you are known for what you are against, people will be drawn to you as a person rather than God. I'm against same-sex marriage. I'm against divorce. I'm against adultery. I'm against gender transference. I'm against abortion. I'm against anything and everything that goes against and despises the sanctity of marriage and human life. And it doesn't take much to stir up a riot. An undefensible action, an accuser picks up the first stone, and soon there's a crowd of righteous stone throwers like we read about in the Scriptures because everyone in the crowd knows what they are against. And I read this account in the Bible, and I know what they're against. And I think to myself, there was a time, had I been there, I would have been picking up a rock too. And a couple years ago, I heard this song recorded by the Isaacs, entitled Rocks. And it simply says, rocks are heavy. They hurt people you love. And it's so easy reaching down and picking them up. But I ain't going to throw no stones at nobody. Don't want to get hit by a ricochet. Ain't got no room for no rocks in my pockets anyways. He just sat there drawn on the ground beside her. She was caught red-handed. And man, they couldn't wait to stone her. And now I'm just paraphrasing. But Jesus said, wait a minute, step right up. And be the first to throw. And if you ain't done some sinning, one by one, they all dropped their stones and went home. Rocks are heavy and they hurt people you love. And it's so easy reaching down and picking them up. But I ain't going to throw no stones at nobody. Don't want to get hit by a ricochet. Ain't got no room in my pocket. 
ain't got no room for rocks in my pockets anyways. Oh, rock of ages, sweet, sweet cornerstone was meant to be a place to hide and not something we throw. So I ain't going to throw no stones at nobody because I need grace to make every day. Ain't got no rocks in my pockets. No rocks in my pockets anyways. We know what Jesus was against. It's all spelled out in Scripture. But when confronted by the sin of people, we discover more of what he was for. He was for saving mankind. He was for this woman and millions of women just like her in need of forgiveness and grace. He was for the men who would stone her and millions more like them in need of mercy and grace. And I've written my share of letters and I've stood in the picket line and I've used the bully pulpit more than once, but I don't do those things anymore. And the transition for me was when I read Phil Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? What I'm against never saved anybody that I know of. But what Jesus is for can save everybody. Phil Yancey asked the question with his title, What's so amazing about grace? John Newton, who wrote that song, was a slave trader, a drunken brawler, a sinful man until the age of 39 when he was ordained to the ministry in the Anglican church and crowds gathered to hear the old sea captain preach. And then he wrote this song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You want there to be a buzz about your church? Then let your neighbors and your town know what you're for. Before his death, burial, and resurrection, before leaving this earth, before giving us a great commission. In Matthew chapter 9, we read something about what moved the heart of Jesus to be our Savior. In verse 35, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's the harvest season, folks. There are fields that are ready, but I fear there are just not enough workers. So I say to you this morning, encourage one another and your minister to mainstream evangelism into his preaching and into everything you do. I would say to all of you to raise your intensity for evangelism as a church. I would challenge you to some of this 3D evangelism to decide and develop and discern. I challenge you to create a buzz in your community and let people know what you are for. This is the church that Jesus died for. This is the church that his resurrection offers us forgiveness and grace and indeed, grace is amazing. And whatever the messiness of your life, the sin that controls your heart and mind, the message of the church, this church, is to show you that God does love the world, and that includes you and wants to save you and give you a life that can be eternal.
with God. And so that is the invitation of of the message I would give to you today. That's the invitation to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, thank you so much for loving us with an everlasting love so that we might have an everlasting life with you. And Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for those who rise up to seek and to save those who are lost. And Father, for most of all, I thank you for Jesus, the cross, and the third day. In Jesus' name, amen.